Excellent. Excellent song. Would you turn in your Bibles? And I trust you brought them, yes? Good. To Nehemiah chapter 1. Thirteen verses comprise Nehemiah chapter 1. Eleven verses, excuse me. And uh, we're going to read all eleven tonight. Amazing, isn't it? Why don't we have a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, so much of this evening has been in prayer. Our worship songs to you, we've reflected on your character, your nature, our relationship to you. Um, We've even thought about our own needs and issues or the needs of others as we've lifted them before your throne during these songs. And now, Father, we pray that our minds would be clear, that our hearts would be open, that you would speak to us, that you would speak to us, Lord, through this chapter, how you moved upon an individual to do your work because he saw a need and he availed himself to that. I pray that the principles that are surfaced in this chapter would be more than just surface principles in our life, that they go down deep, that we would respond to them. And more than that, we would respond to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It was, by all intents and purposes, a normal winter's day in a place called Shushan, where Nehemiah was living. It was between November and December, the Hebrew month of Kislev, what began like an ordinary day would end like a very extraordinary day because some things were set in motion in what Nehemiah heard and then what Nehemiah did based upon what Nehemiah heard that would change not only his life, but the life of the Jews forever. And so we're in Nehemiah chapter 1. And you can see by the boards on the side that it's a time to build. That's the theme of this book. And we want to pick up on that theme as a theme for this part of our church's history. My dad was a builder. He liked to build things with his hands. He liked to make things in the garage. He liked to make uh, companies and organizations. And he was a land developer. He had vision. He could see a plot of land and he developed a large portions of it up in the high desert. But he could see a a plot of dry desert land, and in his mind, with his vision, it came to life. And then I'd watch him as he, he made it live. He turned that empty piece of land into a vibrant community. Nehemiah was a builder. He didn't start out that way. He was a cup bearer, we're going to find out in this chapter in the last verse. But he also had vision for God's city and for what potential was among the Jews in the city of Jerusalem that up to that point was still in disrepair. And he hears about it in this chapter. Nehemiah set a record by building the walls of the city of Jerusalem and the streets in 52 days. 52 days. Now, it had been for about 100 years in disrepair. And in 52 days, the project he set out to perform was completed. With a lot of teamwork, a lot of prayer, a lot of energy, faith in the Lord, it happened. Somebody said there's three kinds of people. There's people who make things happen. There's people who watch things happen. And there's people who have no idea what's happening. We all know a lot of people like that, looking around, no idea what's happening. Then there's a great majority of folks who just watch others do things. But there are those leaders who set things in motion and make things happen. And it's all because Nehemiah was convinced and convicted in his heart that it was time to build the walls of that city. And though he lived miles away from it, he got involved. Now, we're going to read this chapter. I've been promising you that, and we haven't even started the first verse, and I'm going to take you on a detour right off the bat because I want to put a principle in your mind as we get started. So I'd like you to turn to Ecclesiastes 
chapter 3 for just a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you haven't found that, it's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you're in the Song of Solomon or Isaiah, turn left. Go back a couple blocks. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, that familiar passage, the birds made it a hit song in the 60s. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Jerusalem had been broken down for a long time. Gates burned with fire, walls still unbuilt, meaning the city was unprotected. Now it's time to build. Now it's time to raise up that protection and make something firm and permanent for the citizens that had returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. I've been at Ocean Hills now for about 14 months. And it has been, quite honestly, an interesting and different experience than what I have ever experienced. See, what I'm used to is starting from scratch. That's my happy zone. We started in Albuquerque with three Well, no, with four and then three people. Four the first week, three the next. The guy who showed up the first week never returned. That's how we started, but it was from scratch. And I was used to that. Um, What I heard when I went there from California is it can't be done. People in the community told me that. Churches in other cities said... Listen, don't expect what happened out in Southern California to happen out here in New Mexico. It can't happen. It's a different place. I remember hearing that. And now I can look back after 23 years and see what God did because he wanted to. Now, when I came here, I didn't get that can't be done. I got more, well... We've never done things that way. Because a history was already set in motion. Wheels had already been set in motion. A church had already been established. So I was quite out of my comfort zone. Now, I'm doing a study here after 14 months called The Time to Build. And I'll tell you why now. Because there was a verse of scripture the Lord gave me out of Jeremiah chapter 1. When God said, Jeremiah, I'm setting you as a prophet. But first... You're going to need to tear down and destroy and then build and then plant. I didn't like hearing that. I had a hunch what that might mean. It might mean that we were going to tear down some old systems, some old paradigms, some old ways of doing things and institute some new things, new priorities, new ways of doing things. I feel we're at a turning point. And what I mean by that is that we're at the fun stage of building now. Momentum is gaining. Excitement is gaining. And it's it's building around the common community of worship and the word and getting to know each other in a brand new way. That to me is exciting to build new friends, new acquaintances, new relationships, new possibilities. And I'll state it again, my desire isn't just to pastor a church as much as be part of a move of God. I want to see God breathe a fresh breath, a fresh move, a fresh wind of his spirit. I've seen it before. I will be satisfied with nothing less. I want God to move in Orange County and pour out his spirit in South Orange County and do awesome things, miracles. A move of God. When I first came to Ocean Hills, I was told by one of the elders that this place years ago had been evaluated. I'm not going to say how long ago. I don't even know. But it was by an outside consultant group who came in and looked at this 
systems that were in order and the way things had been operated in the past. And they said, quite frankly, Ocean Hills has been a series of silo ministries. That is, they're individual groups that have a common place to meet, but there's not a whole lot of interaction with each other. There's not a whole lot of being on the same page and moving in a common goal with a common vision and a united direction. And they said corporate Bible study would be just the thing that is needed. And so here we are. Novel thought, isn't it? Open the Bible and read through it. And that's what we're going to be committed to. So we want to build the kingdom. We want to do it together. And tonight in Nehemiah chapter 1, I want to give you four ways in looking at the life of this committed man, four ways that you can build God's kingdom. You can build this community. We can build together. The words of Nehemiah, a great name. It means God is the comforter or God comforts. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, around November or December, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. The year is 446 to 445 B.C. I say between those two because their years and those times would overlap what our calendar system would be. Shushan is about 150 miles away from Babylon. So for a point of reference, it's 150 miles more toward the Persian Gulf area, a beautiful spot to hang out in the winter. And probably this was the winter palace for King Artaxerxes. You'll see his name in a minute. Of Persia. It was the Palm Springs of the Persian Gulf. Great place to hang out, great place to winter. That Hanani, verse 2, one of my brethren came with me from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates burned with fire. When I heard, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, night and day, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast into the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to this place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. The first thing that Nehemiah does is he asks the right question. It says that he was a cup bearer. It doesn't sound very impressive. In fact, my first impression of the word cup bearer is a busboy. Not a very important position at all, but a little research would reveal quite the opposite. A cup bearer was in the most trusted position to the king. He was a close confidant of the king. It was his job, you see, to not only bear the cup to the king, 
but it's because he has tasted the contents of the cup first and then gives it to the king, which means if there's poison in the wine, if there's poison in the food, if there's any conspiracy at all that would compromise what the king is going to take in, it would affect the cupbearer. He would taste it first. And if the king was poisoned, the cupbearer would soon need a pallbearer. He would die instead of the king. So a close relationship developed between... They're coming. (laughs) Between cupbearer and king. A position of trust. The king would ask the cupbearer his opinion. By the way, the cupbearer in Persia had to be conversant in politics... He had to know legal court proceedings. He had to advise the king on that. And, interesting, he had to be handsome. All of those things he had to have, and that was Nehemiah. The only one closer to the king than Nehemiah would be the king's wife. And so it was a very, very trusted position. We uh, saw the king's name. His name is Artaxerxes. And if you want a fuller detail on his name, it is Artaxerxes I, Longimanus. His name becomes important to us, and we'll touch on it more next week, because he gives a decree that forms for us the beginning of a date that was predicted by Daniel while he was in captivity for the coming of the Messiah. March 14th, 445 B.C. We'll get to that at another time. We touched on that already on a Sunday. But Artaxerxes I, Longimanus, he is the king of Persia. Interesting to note, he is the stepson of Queen Esther. Remember that Ahasuerus, does that name ring a bell to some of you? Ahasuerus was the king of Persia. Vashti was his wife. The king deposed Vashti because she was uh, not an obedient wife. He was a kind of a crazy guy. You know the story of Esther. Uh, She becomes the queen, and the stepson of that relationship is Artaxerxes, which helps us explain why there is a Jew in the trusted position of being a cupbearer to a Persian king. It's because his stepmother was Jewish, Queen Esther, and she had probably say-so in appointing this fella as the cupbearer. Another question, what are the Jews doing in Persia? Just in case you may not know the history, here's a snapshot. Israel, the ten northern tribes, were taken captive by the Assyrians. The date of that was 722 B.C. Years later, 586 B.C., we covered that in Jeremiah, at least what we read of Jeremiah. Uh, uh, 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in. They had conquered the entire world, including the Assyrians, and they took the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, captive to Babylon. At this point in history, both of those kingdoms are gone. The Medo-Persian Empire is the big kid on the block, and the Medo-Persian Empire is in control of the entire world. And Cyrus was the king who in 539 B.C., don't worry about all the dates, but you'll get a quiz at the end of our uh, study. 539, he gave that repatriation decree that the Jews could go back and establish their own land once again. So 50,000 went with Ezra. They had been there for a long period of time, at least a century had gone by. But Jerusalem is really in no better shape, except there's a temple there in a city that is unprotected. So that's the background. But he asked the right question. In verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. He just asked a simple question. What's happening in Jerusalem? And he tells them. Now, I was reading this, and a question came into my mind, and it, it's a cynical kind of a question, and I'm sort of going to ask it cynically. Who cares? Who cares? And I'm bringing it up that way because I would ask that question to you tonight about the church, about the state of Christians in our culture, in our state, in our county. Who cares? 
The answer should be, I care. We better care. It would be very easy for Nehemiah not to care, not to get the information, not to ask the question. He was about 750 miles away from Jerusalem. Oh, he grew up hearing about this repatriation of Cyrus back in 539 B.C. and that Jews went to Jerusalem to rebuild it. He knew that the city was in ruins. He could have said, you know, whatever. It's not my problem. I don't live there. I've got a nice, comfortable position right here in the palace. But he asked the question. And so who cares about the church? I mean, who really today cares about spiritual matters? And I want to answer that question. It might surprise you how I'm going to answer it. You know who really cares about spiritual things? Women. If you were to take a survey of a demographic, a gender demographic of people that call in for counseling, those who listen to Christian radio, those who buy Christian books, those who are really concerned in families about spiritual things, you'll discover at least two to one it's women over men. That's just the facts. Men, it's time to rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things, bring heart and soul and mind and strength, and serve the King of Kings. It's time for men to be the leaders in our community and in our churches and to be interested about spiritual things. One of the great trends I'm excited about in this fellowship is the men that I see God raising up. The leadership that I see, the men's groups that are developing, the men's Bible studies, this great interest of men training men, discipling men, and being leaders and mentors. I'm excited about that. It's a wonderful, wonderful landmark in the growth of any church. Well, as I look in the Bible at people who cared, I would say Moses cared. He was out there in Egypt and he saw the plight of his people. And there's a commentary in his life in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses saw the affliction of his people and chose not to uh, enjoy Egypt, but suffer the reproach with the people of God rather than pursuing the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses cared. I read through the Bible. Daniel cared. He was in Babylon. He had read Jeremiah. And the Bible says he set his face to seek the Lord and to pray concerning this matter and for his people. Jeremiah cared. He was in the midst of the people of Judah. He was the one who stood up and prophesied to them, even though they hated his guts and imprisoned him. And he prayed and he wept over Jerusalem. These are people who cared. Well, Nehemiah that day asked the right question. Not knowing what it was going to lead to, not knowing what answer he would get, and probably not even aware of the kind of reaction and emotion that that would lead to. There's an old saying, it says, large doors swing on small hinges. And I like that. Because God in his providence will do huge things beginning with small little providential setups. It might be a phone call. It might be a letter, it might be a question you ask and you get a response and the information you get could open up a door that you never even thought of. I was asked to come to a potluck by my ex-girlfriend years ago. Okay, I said. That night I met Lenya. <laughs> Big doors on small hinges. I got a phone call from a friend one time who said, I'm, I was here in Huntington Beach, California. I'm moving to Albuquerque, he said. My response is, why? <laughs> well, I'm going to do radio. Why don't you pray about coming? Simple phone call. 23 years later, I get a little letter from a church called Ocean Hills. Are you interested? Would you pray? Big doors are on small hinges. Now, some people don't want to ask questions because 
And you ask questions, you get information. And with information comes responsibility. So some people would rather not know. That, that's why we find ourselves going past the information ads of uh, needy places in the world and children who are starved. We don't want to know that. Turn it to the next thing. Information brings obligation. It's like the professor who asked his students, he said, what do you think is a bigger problem in our society, ignorance or apathy? And one student said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> Both. Yesterday I was with a brother from our church, and I love, I love the way our meeting went. He asked me very specifically what the needs were in our church and how he could specifically help. And he had several things in mind. He asked the right question. Nehemiah asked the right question. Second thing is he felt the right emotion. Look at verse 3. And they said to me, these are the people from Jerusalem who had been there, his brother, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You got to admit, that's a strong emotion. He heard that there was a problem. He heard that the walls of the city that had been broken down and the gates that had been burned with fire all the way back since 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, nothing really has changed. People have been back there. They have settled. The temple is built, but they are in such oppression and distress. Nehemiah had a strong reaction. He starts crying. He starts weeping. And it, it took him days to catch up with this emotion. And I guess the question is, why? What's the big deal about walls? Well, any city without walls is no city in ancient times. It's an outpost. There's really no protection. Walls are a means of protection, keeping the enemy out. It's a means of provision, keeping people inside and protected with their stuff. Without walls, there's no protection. Without walls, there's no provision. And that's his homeland. And there's an old saying that the Jews say, the rabbis say, that a Jew never forgets Jerusalem. The psalmist said, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its cunning. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not prefer Jerusalem above my chief joy. Maybe those words tumbled through his head. Or thoughts like that. Yeah, Jerusalem. It's my homeland. It's, it's what God through Moses in the Torah promised that his name would be for generations. Now let's uh, apply that from, from the walls of Jerusalem to our own lives. Listen to what Solomon says in the Proverbs. The one who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down without walls. Do you hear that? Cities need walls. Souls, us, people need walls. Families need walls. Marriages need walls. Churches need walls of protection, boundaries, borders, parameters. Once again, that scripture, the one who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. What is your reaction when you hear of a church that splits? Oh, whatever. Oh, well, I'll tell you what a lot of people do. They go, well, it serves them right. I went there and I didn't get my way. My agenda wasn't served. What reaction do you have when you find a Christian who really doesn't fellowship at a church? They feel like they've been burned too many times and now they just sort of stay at home and watch the Internet or listen to the radio or just get a few buddies together, or their family together, but they don't really have a church family. You might say, well, it's not my problem. Well, remember Jesus saw the multitude and he was 
compassionate toward them. And here's the words, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. It bothered him. It was a strong reaction of compassion. Nehemiah feels that. These people, they don't have walls. They're not protected. They're, they're not together. They're aimless. Now, broken walls of a city also represent broken homes. Let me explain why. Do you remember when the city of um, Jericho fell? And whose house was built right on the edge of the wall and she let a rope down? Rahab. She was a city harlot, the Bible tells us. God used her. Her house was on the wall. So when the walls break down, because people sometimes build their houses on that outside perimeter wall, that's one side of their home, if the wall breaks down, their homes are broken down. What is your reaction to people in our society? Let's bring it a little closer. In our church, whose families, marriages, homes are broken. I wonder how we react with these statistics. One out of seven Americans has been sexually abused as a child. One in five kids lose their virginity before the age of 13, 61% by age 16. One third of married couples confess they have had at least one affair. The United States Census Bureau says divorce has gone up in this last century 700 The walls of the city are broken down. The gates have been burned with fire. Now, reaction to, to need is vital. Because depending on how we respond to information that we hear, our reaction is vital. It will determine what will be done. It moves us to action. It's what God uses to speak to our hearts. Information produces emotion, produces reaction, which leads to action, as we see here in this chapter. Let's suppose in one apartment, one house, there are two male roommates. One is a neat freak, and one is a slob. Can you picture them? I mean, one is uh, obsessive, compulsive about everything being just right. The other guy could care less. I mean, you know, there's just clothes everywhere. He just throws them everywhere. Let's say there's a need that arises in that house, a leaky faucet, or it drips because of a rainstorm, or it's dirty. Which one is going to be moved to action? Mr. Clean, right? Not the slob. He thinks this is paradise. Why change it? But the one who sees the need and is moved and agitated by what he sees or what he feels, he's the one that's going to do something about it. What makes you laugh? What makes you cry? What moves you emotionally? See, God wants our hearts to break over the very things that break his heart. That's called fellowship with God. Our hearts are moved by the things that move his heart. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem. Nehemiah wept over Jerusalem. Overseeing God's people hurt. Heard a story about a little girl. She was on her way home from school, but she was delayed, and her mom scolded her because, you know, parents are very insistent about kids being home from school. We want to know where they are. We want to make sure they're safe. This little girl took an inordinate amount of time to go home. When she came home, mom scolded her. Where have you been? She said, well, mom, I was on the way home, and my little friend so-and-so was crying because she had a broken doll. So mom relaxed and said, oh, how sweet. You stopped to help her fix her doll. She said, no, mommy, I stopped to help her cry. That's sweet. I just entered into her emotion. God had a strong feeling toward Jerusalem, and Nehemiah had a strong reaction and emotion. Third thing he did, he had the right reaction. He had the right reaction. He asked the right question. He felt the right emotion. Number three, he had the right reaction. Verse four, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, it says. Here's the secret to the book of Nehemiah. Ready? Prayer. It's one of the secrets to this man's life. 
The book opens in prayer. The book closes in prayer. And this guy, Nehemiah, prays a lot in between. He hears of something, he prays about it. He's about to do something, he stops and he prays about it. Uh, A decree is set, he's about to go on his journey, he stops and he prays first. He gets to Jerusalem, he prays. We see that all the way through the book. Now, I want you and me to examine the prayer of Nehemiah tonight and look at the way he prayed. He opens up and prays, verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Nehemiah began talking to God with the right perspective. It always helps to realize who you're praying to when you begin your prayer. Because otherwise, you'll rush into the presence of God overwhelmed and underimpressed. You'll go, oh God, this is horrible. I just can't believe. And you'll start doing one of those numbers before God. It always helps to pause and realize who it is you're talking to. I'm talking to God. He's the God who made heaven and earth. He can do anything. It's prayer with perspective. So this this is praise. Next, look at verse 6 and 7. This is confession. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel. Now, notice this and watch this which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Did you notice the wording? We, us, our. You go, now wait a minute. If I know my history right, He's identifying with people he's never met. You're right. But he sees himself as part of the problem before he becomes part of the solution. You see, that's important. We are a generation of finger pointers. It's not my fault. I'm a victim. It's everybody else's fault. It's my mom's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's the government's fault. It's everybody else's fault but my own. It's the church's fault. It's their fault. He sees himself as part of the problem before he interjects himself as part of the solution. Very important. We're we're the body of Christ. We're talking about building up the church together, building up the walls together. So it's language like us, we, not, you know, pastor, you need to be doing this. And I'm noticing this around the church. Who's doing that? I'll tell you a basic formula I have used for the past 23 years of my ministry, and it's worked pretty well. Whenever somebody, by the grace of God, sees a need in the church and they tell me about it, I thank the Lord for it. Under my breath, I go, thank you, Lord. And this is usually what I do. Pastor, I've noticed a great need in this church. Well, what is it? They tell me, I go, boy, that is a great need. Well, uh, how come somebody isn't doing anything about it? And I'll say, I think somebody's just about to. (laughs) Since the Lord put it on your heart and you've got the vision for it, Go for it. Do it. And let's now help organize and get the right kind of people you need to do it and then march on. But we can do this with churches. We can say, uh, I don't like this about that church. And they do it this way at that church. And they sing it like that. And I don't like this. And it's easy to get into that habit, that trap. And so ask yourself this question. And I want this to sort of ring in your ears and your conscience. So go home with it tonight. If everybody in my church were exactly like me, what kind of church would I be in? Now, before you go, a fabulous one. (laughs) If everybody in my church were just like me, what kind of church would I be in? Verse 8 and verse 9 and 10, there's confidence in his prayer. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast into the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there, bring them to this place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. 
Nehemiah knew his Bible. He'd read Leviticus. He remembered that there was a promise that though they were scattered, yet they would return. Also Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30. He knew that. It was in his head, in his heart. And he knew that God was a God who keeps his covenant. And he knew that Jeremiah had said that if they're cast away, and they will be, 70 years later they'll return. And a lot of them had returned. And there was the promise of the rebuilding. And so he, in confidence, is bringing that before the Lord. It's as if Nehemiah is saying, God, we're not promise keepers. We're promise breakers. You're the promise keeper. You made these promises long ago. And I expect you and trust you and believe that you're going to keep them. You're the promise keeper. Verse 11 is his petition. Oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. That's him speaking of his prayer at that moment. And to the prayer of your servants, those other Jews who may be in that place, Medo-Persia, and in the other place, Jerusalem, who would be praying. Who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this man being king, Artaxerxes, for I was the king's cup bearer. Never be intimidated or timid to be very specific in asking God for something. Personal petition. And here's why. Jesus said, ask. That's a commandment. Not a divine suggestion. A commandment. Ask and it shall be given to you. Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. Now having said that, it's important that you want to find the will of God as close as you can and, and pray according to the will of God and realize that when you pray for something, it may not be the will of God so that God has editing rights over your prayers. And you can pray anything you want and God can answer any way he wants, right? I don't care if you say, but I claim it in Jesus' name and I trust, hallelujah. You can do that shenanigans all day long, but you're still confronted with the will of God. If it's in the will of God, it's going to be done. If it's not in the will of God, you can pray and fast and twist people's arms and try to twist God's arm. And he'll say, no. I love the story of the little boy who was saying his evening prayers about a week before his birthday. Oh, Lord, bless mommy. And Lord, bless daddy. And bless Jimmy. And bless Ricky. And bless the dog. And bless the cat. And God, please give me a new bicycle. Amen. And mom said, son, you don't have to yell. God is in death. He goes, mom, I know God is in death, but grandma's in the next room and she's hard of hearing. <laughs> I'm going to pray this, but I sure hope grandma hears because I want that prayer answered through her buying me that bicycle. But God can say yes, God can say no, God can say wait. This happened to be according to the will of God. Nehemiah knew it. He's calling upon his reservoir of scriptural knowledge and he prays this petition. One of the things I'm blessed with is what happened while I was over in Israel this last time. I came back to a small group of men who decided to gather once a week in the morning and pray for Skip. Pray for their pastor. Be his support system. Hold up his arms in prayer. And I came back, so we've been meeting for two weeks, and God just put it on our hearts. We're going to get together every time this week, early in the morning, and just pray that God gives you strength, God gives you vision. And it was one of the things that my wife and I had been praying for just while we were in Israel. And God was answering it on the other side of the world. Personal petition. The fourth thing that Nehemiah does is he performed the right action. He performed the right action. Verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. This is what it implies, and you're going to see it in the next chapter. He's about to march into the king and he hopes to have a conversation with the king about the very thing that he's had on his heart 
And he's asking God to bless that meeting. He's going to go in and stand before the king. So here's the progression that we see in this book. It opens up. Nehemiah sat down and wept. Nehemiah knelt down and prayed. Now Nehemiah will stand up and work. He sat down and he wept. He knelt down and he prayed. Now he's going to stand up and work. So it begins in silence. What begins in meditation and worship will end in work and in service. Somebody once said, prayer isn't getting your will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. And that's true. And then I would just add to that. But God needs available people on earth to get his will done on earth. And that's where you have people like Nehemiah or people like Isaiah saying, Now, Lord, I am available to be the very answer to the prayer that I have just prayed. We need help in Jerusalem. That wall needs to be built. Here am I, Lord. Send me. So bless me as I go into the king. It's the, it's the Romans 12, 1 principle. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, a very important position. For him to go to Jerusalem, he would have to leave his position. He would have to sacrifice. He would have to leave a life of ease, a life of comfort, a life of knowing where everything is on any given day and march 750 miles into the unknown and risk everything. But here's a guy who's not interested in building the Persian kingdom. He's not interested in building Nehemiah's kingdom. He's interested in building the kingdom of God on the earth. And it was worth it to him. Think of how often our prayers are for us. Now, I just said that's okay, right? Because Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. Don't be timid. But think of the proportion of our prayers that are self-oriented. Lord, do something for me. Rather than the prayer of, Lord, what would you like me to do for you? One of the greatest movements in history was a mission movement called the Moravian Movement. And it was founded by a wealthy nobleman named Count Baron von Zinzendorf. You say with a name like that, the mission field's the only place you can go. No, no, he was aristocracy. He was wealthy. He had it all together. And he walked by a painting in a museum one day of Jesus dying on the cross. And it had a little inscription on the bottom as if Jesus from the cross was saying, and it read, this is what I have done for thee What wilt thou do for me? That changed his life. He went out of there going, I lay my life down. What do you want me to do? And he began a great church movement of sending out foreign missionaries called the Moravian Movement. And so that's the question. Lord, what do you want me to do for your kingdom? John F. Kennedy, in his speech years ago, immortalized that famous saying, Ash not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Remember that? No, it's, it's just my nonsense. It's the way I break up an evening. And so we might say the same thing about this and the kingdom of God. Ask not what God can do for you, though he delights in doing things for you. But Lord, what can I do for you? Saul of Tarsus was knocked off his animal, and he asked the Lord two questions. Who are you? Second question, what do you want me to do? You know, there's a lot of Christians that are never used by God because they've never asked that question. They've never just come to a place of, do you want me to pour out my life for some greater good and greater goal than just me? Is there some, something in the, in the wind that is blowing that God wants me to be a part of in the kingdom of God? Could that be possible? Will I be alive to see that? Lord, do you want to use me? Well, Nehemiah arrives at Jerusalem, and next week we'll read how he changes hats from cup bearer to construction worker. He's a lame, I was going to say a lame man. He was a layman (laughs) devoted to God, a cup bearer, a lay person who gets involved in one of the most significant works in history. Can God use a wine taster? A cup bearer? 
Can I just throw out a thought out to you in closing before we pray? God has all sorts of creative ways to do his kingdom work. You might say, you know, I'm not an evangelist. I never went to preacher school. I don't know how to lead people in worship like Holland does. I don't have those kind of gifts. I'm this profession or that profession. I clean boats on the side or I'm a doctor or I work in this profession. Great. You're perfect. How could God creatively use you right where you are to spread the kingdom? I was in a Bible study years ago in Garden Grove. I taught this Bible study. And this, this gal, kind of a rough Boston accent, she uh, would bring people to this Bible study every week. She's chewing gum. Sitting in the corner, bring these, and, and a lot of times there were guys that she bring to the Bible study. I said, Barb, tell me your story. She said, Skip, I'm sort of embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm a great pool player. In fact, I'm what you call a pool shark. She said, I can clean the clock in pool of just about anybody I know. So she said, I feel like the Lord instructed me to go to these bars. where there's pool tables and I hang out over by the pool tables and inevitably one of these guys tries to pick me up. I say, well, Barb, now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to rationalize this in my head. I go, I'm in a counselor, right? Barb, um, let me share a few words with you. Cause no, no, let me tell you what I do. I'm in the bar. These guys try to pick me up. And I said, tell you what, I challenge you to a game of pool. If you beat me, you can take me right over to the bar and buy me a drink. She said, of course, if they ever did that, I'd order a Coke. But if I, if I win this game, you got to listen to me talk to you for an hour about anything I want to. They said, deal. She said, Skip, I lead these guys to Christ every week. And then I bring them to this Bible study every week. And I thought, now that is creative evangelism. <laughs> Don't you love it? Sky's the limit. Sky's the limit. What, would, what do you want me to do, Lord? Let's pray together. Lord, the walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire in families, in culture, and among so many churches in our community. Lord, we are living smack dab in the middle of a community whose churches for many, many years have been known for that kind of strife and division and power struggle. Father, forgive us. Change us. We repent before you, the God of heaven, And we pray for a fresh outfall and outpouring of your spirit in our lives where we would come and have an authentic relationship with you and be authentic and real with one another, letting our guard down, building the walls of provision and security up, but never so high that others can't come. Lord, I pray that we would be excited about spiritual things, that we would care rather than looking around and saying, ah, who cares? Shake us as Orange County Christians in the most affluent country and spot on earth. Shake us. Make us care and give us a zeal in our hearts to expand your kingdom in Jesus' name. And everybody who cared said, Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.